Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. This is a podcast for and about midwives. This is the place where midwives come to share their stories. I am your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself. I felt called to this journey of sharing the stories of midwives around the globe, and I hope you will find as much joy listening as I do interviewing. Remember, life is about the journey. Welcome to another episode of Journey to Midwifery. This is Jamie Gurton. I am a certified nurse midwife and also the owner of the platform of Midwife Nation, but I'm guest hosting today for Amber. And today we have a special guest. Her name is Haley. She is an occupational therapist by trade, but she has all of these other specialties that she's gone and gotten as well. And I'll tell you in a moment how I met her, but first Haley, introduce yourself and welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, so my name is Haley Krastowski. I am a doctor of occupational therapy um, with a specialty in maternal and infant health. Um, so I got here just from, I started in the NICU and then through the NICU, saw the need for working with moms, got trained as a doula, and then the stars aligned in a birth center um, here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, asked if I would be a staff doula for them. And then that kind of sparked, that was back in 2017. And that sparked this entire unfolding of this beautiful connection between midwives and OTs. Oh, she has so many good things to share. So a little bit of background for our listeners. I met Haley this past fall at the Virginia ACNM Potpourri Conference that they do every year. And she was one of the speakers on the panel um, that they had selected. And she just offered so many insights. I remember I was sitting there taking notes on things to send both our midwife, uh, we call her the head midwife. That's not her official title, but you guys know the people that are in charge of all the big decisions, but also our practice manager to say, can we get occupational therapy, physical therapy into our practices and, and use some of these ideas that Haley has done. So you have so much to share. So we always start with, tell us about your journey. So it sounds like you started in the NICU. So walk us from NICU to kind of where you are now. Yeah. So, so I, I went to OT school and I chose a graduate school program that had a NICU research lab because those are like few and far between in the country. And it's really hard as an OT to break into the NICU. So I wanted to get as much experience early on to then be able to kind of like jumpstart that part of my career pretty quickly. Um, So it was actually in grad school that I was working with babies and I'm just seeing this mom sitting in the chair behind me, like She's freshly postpartum, whether it was a C-section or a vaginal delivery, she's broken. She's sore. She's sad. Like this was not what she intended. And nobody was really talking to her. Everybody was just focused on the baby. And it like really, it like hit me deep in my core. Um, So when you're getting your doctorate in OT, you actually have to create a model of care. It's essentially like a thesis. Um, So I decided to design my entire model of care around how OTs could work with women during pregnancy and postpartum. And that really like steamrolled the whole process. Cause at that point in time, this wasn't really a thing yet. So I was piecemealing research together from like articles that were not pertaining to OT at all whatsoever, but trying to like extrapolate that information and make it relevant to OT. Um, And then I took my first pediatric job, definitely was not what I thought I wanted to be doing. Um, And so just kind of kept like searching. And with, I I did my training for doula through um, DONA 
And this magical birth center here in Fredericksburg was opening up, just like popped up out of nowhere. And they asked if I would be um, a staff doula. So in their practice, everybody who's coming into care gets a doula. It's part of the like fee structure that they pay. Um, so right off the bat, I was seeing like multiple women a month for birth and just sitting in the birth room with these women and watching the transformation happening, like watching this woman going from being a pregnant woman to a mother and like seeing then the transition that the baby goes through, like all of the cardinal movements they're making on the way out and how that impacts their development So I felt like I was like a fly on the wall watching like, whoa, this is like OT is always working on role transformations and adjustments to life and development of the body and adjusting the way you live to meet the way that like your, your abilities basically. Um, And just through conversation with the midwives, like having the opportunity just to, you know, at 3 a.m. to sit there and just brainstorm. And um, it really led to like, they were bringing up needs that they had. So they were like, well, we need pelvic floor therapy for our moms. Well, we need breastfeeding support for our moms. Well, the moms want more after they're done, after their six week appointment. And it was just through that brainstorm that it was like, this is this is what OT does. This is exactly what we can do. And so we just, you know, I started out really, really small and now it's grown into this very much larger scale, like integrative care model. Um, yeah. And that's like up to present day. I mean, I, I left my job in the NICU and last year and did the, I'm working on the business full time now. And it's really a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful collaboration. That's amazing. I love how you said all the conversations started at 3 a.m. because that is where we really are having our best conversations. You know, you've been awake 20 plus hours and then you just have the subconscious thoughts that are bubbling to the surface that are all of your solutions that you actually need in maternal child health care. It's really a wild time. Like, I don't think enough people talk about that, like that 3 a.m. You're drinking a cup of coffee, like new life was just born. And now your brain is just like, it's on a different wavelength at that point in time. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think it has, you're basically surviving because you're awake when you're not supposed to be and you're drinking coffee when you're not supposed to be. And so your body is thinking, okay, you're drinking, you're feeding me, you're awake. What else do I need to be functioning on? And it doesn't have anything else. And so you just have all those thoughts come. Right. Okay. So prior to you doing essentially what you called your thesis, have you come across anybody else that saw this connection between NICU and pregnancy and postpartum and OT coming alongside? Cause you said that it just wasn't a connection that you had really seen. Yeah, that's a great question. And now this is, I mean, this is almost 10 years ago. So I know that there was, there was another woman who had also gone through Washington University's OT program and had also done the NICU lab and was living in Chicago and interested in becoming a doula. So like, I think that people were seeing the overlaps, but it wasn't really in practice yet at that point in time. Um, I had found a woman and I'm, I'm not going to remember her name, but she did have a practice that to me at the time was like, oh, this is 
absolutely genius, but she was located in New York. And I remember reaching out to her at the time and it just nothing, no connection could ever really come from it. So I feel like it was starting to happen, but there was nobody yet really doing it. So people didn't know like, well, what is the path forward here? Like you have to, we have to kind of like create it on our own, I feel like. And so I don't really remember anybody in particular sticking out in my brain at that point in time. Yeah. That's because you were a trailblazer. <laughs> oh gosh. That feels heavy. <laughs> Blazing the trail. Okay. So present day, you're still working with the birth center, but alongside the birth center, you've got your own clinic, right? Yes. Or a uh, holistic model. I'm not sure if clinic is the right term. Yeah. I, I would refer to it as a clinic. Um, and then I would say like within, you know, with my, in the business model, it is, it's this holistic approach to caring for both the mother and the baby in that however you're working with the mom is directly impacting the baby. You know, if you're working on just parenting skills and calming the mom down and helping decrease that cortisol and helping her to self-regulate a little bit, she's then better able to co-regulate with her baby. Yep. And vice versa, you know, if you have a really fussy baby, if you're able to teach parents some strategies and techniques on caring for their little one or identifying why they're little fussy, then you're helping basically like the baby help co-regulate the parents a little bit. So it's this, it's this very reciprocal um, approach to dealing with both mom and baby. It is. I can't tell you how many times I've taught Dr. Harvey Kemp's five S's for calming a baby, the shushing, the, um, yep. the, the sucking, like all the fives while I'm doing my postpartum teaching because the baby is fussing. And so you're immediately saying, do you know the ways that you can calm down a baby? And some babies like to be calm this way and some this way. So there's absolutely a need for that. Yeah. And I think, I think too, that's, that's the unique piece of this. Like just kind of the way our culture and our society are now, you're not every day around women also calming their babies and helping you. You don't get to pick up on cues from other people. It's just not really like the way we do things anymore. And so now we're missing that piece. And that's just so much of it is like parents needing a community and a space to work with other people, see what other people are doing and to just feel like, Oh, your baby cries too. Like I'm normal. <laughs> yeah. All babies cry. I don't know why we, we think we're in a silo. All babies are crying and they don't just cry as newborns. They, they, they cry. They'll cry forever. Sometimes you're a toddlerhood and sometimes in school age, they cry a lot. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about your clinic. What are you doing in the clinic? What are you seeing? What's a normal day look like for you as far as baby care? Um, you're probably doing some infant and toddler care, OTYs, but also mm -hmm. moms and your couplets. And then if I recall, you've got classes too that you offer. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Jamie, great memory. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so my, so my model, I guess, essentially, um, how it all got started, what I originally was insurance based. So I really had to have something solidified as far as like, well, what is insurance going to pay for? So the way I did that was defining myself as doing pelvic floor therapy during pregnancy and postpartum, and then infant development for the first three years of life. Um, that was kind of like, that's how I defined it. So that insurance would reimburse. 
now that I'm no longer taking insurance, I have a ton more flexibility. So I do, I do public floor therapy. I would say that is a good portion of what a day looks like for me are one-on-one sessions with me and a mom and typically the baby. So I guess during pregnancy, obviously baby's in the belly, but doing treatments to help mom either prepare for labor and birth. We do a lot of like push prep practice and how to relax the pelvic floor in preparation for pushing um, or just working on like the aches and the pains. So like the, the symphysis, pubic symphysis dysfunction or SI joint pain, or if there's any of the like abdominal separation, if it's getting pretty extreme during pregnancy, what can we do to help mitigate that? And then postpartum healing all the issues that come from either vaginal birth or C-section. So like C-section scar massage, um, pelvic floor strengthening, which is, you know, so much more than just doing 30 Kegels at a stoplight um, and helping eliminate the issues of like the symptoms of prolapse and the symptoms of urinary incontinence. Um, and some of that, some of it is strengthening and some of it is just, you know, habits and helping women identify ways that they can kind of change their day-to-day lives. So that's a good portion of what I'm doing. Another portion of it all is doing um, oral motor retraining for breast and bottle fed infants, but specifically related to a tongue tie and a lip tie. So I'm not, I'm not a lactation consultant. I'm working towards that, but I'm not that. Um, But I have a lot of training in tongue ties and lip ties. And then from an OT perspective, infant feeding is considered an activity of daily living. Mm -hmm. So it's within the scope of what OTs do. So I'm coming at it from a very functional approach of what muscles are weak, what muscles are strong in the mouth, but then looking at the rest of the baby's body and like, you know, do they have the head control they need for whatever position you're using at the breast, or are they crazy tight throughout the body? Maybe we need to do some massage and then that enhances how well they can open their mouth and suck, swallow, breathe. Um, so those are, those are like two of the branches. And then I do infant development as well. So because I'm now not in network and you can just come, like, we don't have to stick with a real treatment plan the same way an insurance would dictate. Um, I would say a lot of my infant or like birth to three-year-old clients are just coming for developmental milestones. Like mom has noticed like they don't roll or they're 11 or 12 months and they're not crawling. And it's just like one or two sessions to work on kind of resolving some of these issues or showing parents like try these play activities at home to encourage development. Oh, so those are, those are like, yeah, those are like the one, the one-on-one stuff. But then with the birth center, I have a package of four. We just changed it yesterday. So I think it's now five classes, group classes for, um, moms during pregnancy and postpartum, and then one class for, um, dads to come to as well. And those are all in a group setting. And then I do a bunch of like mommy and me dads come too, but I like to call them mommy and me classes, <laughs> um, that are just like a baby boot camp or like movement for moms. It's all just activities to, you know, get you out of the house and get you interacting with your baby in a different way, but also 
working on something in your body too, as the mother. Yeah. This is so great. I mean, postpartum care, you know, this is going through a revolution of how we are supporting anybody who has had a birth in the past year, but I'm hoping that that eventually extends to two to three years. Like this is my, my hope for postpartum is that we say, Oh, it's not just six weeks. Oh wait, it's not just six months or a year that it's three years. Cause I think any person would tell us with your prolapse and your string training and maybe prolonged nursing, it takes a long time to get back to that non-pregnancy. I mean, you never go back to your your pre-pregnant state, there's always something that's a little right. in your body. But how magical would it be to, you know, especially the families that they're, they're having, they're having children on that, like every two year schedule, mm-hmm. if they just remained in care for that entire time of like breastfeeding a toddler into conception and what that looks like, just to have the guidance of, of their provider to help navigate, like, okay, well, what, how does this change everything? Like, why do I still have vaginal dryness while I'm breastfeeding, but trying to conceive and, you know, just to have somebody that navigates that time. I think women feel really lost in that time period. We're just, we're just out here. Like, I don't know if it works, you know, like, (laughs) yes. And I think a lot, a lot of women and families go to social media and that is just I think there are some really good accounts. Yours is one of them. Some really straightforward, great education. But then there are lots of things that are like, oh, your baby should be crawling at five months. And you're, you know, you should X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And yes, we don't want to talk about your problems because you think, oh, I'm the only one. Yes. And then the mom, the mom guilt and the mom shaming, you know, that that is so readily accessible in our culture right now. And women are already going through a really tough time in postpartum with the hormonal fluctuations and then throw in the like, well, my baby didn't crawl when your baby crawled or my baby's not sleeping through the night, the way your baby is sleeping through the night and the, the comparisons and all of that, it just, it really breaks down the mother during such a vulnerable time. Yes. Yeah. And it's really hard to build up a mom when she's feeling that she's not meeting her own milestones, whatever those are. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. One of the things you talked about was, I think at some point you were in the hospital. So this could have been when you were in the NICU or maybe otherwise, but you remind me if I'm wrong on this, but talking about going to see women when they're postpartum over on the postpartum units and about doing ankle rolls after a C-section and how you can get out of bed easier. Um, anybody that practices in the hospital and is taking care of post-operative C-sections knows that pain management is a really big part of both how you're learning during those first 24, 48 hours with your newborn, right. To do all the things, but also you have to meet pain management goals to discharge home. And you were talking about simple things, right? Like proper positioning with breastfeeding, all these things that Ideally, all the providers coming in should be addressing and the nursing staff too, but it's just, I mean, the system is inundated with so, so many needs and there's just not enough staff. And so we try our very best, but we could just be doing so much better. And I thought, gosh, if a therapist came, whether it's a PT or an OT and came and talked about, Hey, did you know breastfeeding is really good for your baby's jaw development? And here's how you do tummy time. 
And let's talk about, you know, your ankle circles and, you know, how to not have terribly sore shoulders for weeks because you're hunched over holding and breastfeeding. Your right. Baby. I, I mean, I'm telling you, there were fireworks in my head, Haley. I thought the system needs this. Somebody needs to spearhead this in every hospital system. Uh, so tell me from your perspective, do you think that would be beneficial from an insurance perspective? Do you think we could get somebody to pay for it? Right. Money is a big player. We have to honor yep. where the money is coming from and how it flows. Definitely. And then um, how how would you recommend getting that started in your system or your hospital? Like birth center is a little bit different. Hospital, yes. they overlap a tiny bit, but they're really different spheres. So tell me all. Yeah, all your- yeah that is, this, this is a great question. So this, this, it, this like happened from kind of, I felt like I was at a point in my life where I was simultaneously working towards two very different goals. And I had no idea where my life was going to go. And I had to just keep pouring energy into both and seeing what happened. So I'm working at the birth center, gathering all this information, starting a business. And then I'm like, everything I'm doing there can and should be done at the hospital. Like we're missing the mark if we're not in like integrating this into the system where the majority of women are having their babies. Um, so I think I started the process, gosh, maybe in the height of COVID. I mean, it might've been 2020, honestly, where I sat down with my rehab manager at the hospital I was working at. And I told her like, this is what I think we can do. I think we can develop a protocol and a program for all the women that come in on bed rest that stay in the hospital for a prolonged period of time. And I think we can develop a C-section recovery program. Obviously there's so many more things that could do, but when you had like, we're starting from scratch, that felt like a really good place to start. So I took it to her first. She agreed and supported it. And then the next step was taking it to the director of, um, the women's and children's department. So like the head of labor delivery postpartum in the NICU. So I presented everything to her and she was on board and she was like, okay, next step is take it to this like big meeting that the ha- the hospital has with like the CEO and the, I don't know, all of the, all the C up there people of like, you know, the people who make the decisions and agree to the things. Um, So I had to go through all these different channels and get on people's schedules and get on their meetings. Finally, it's approved. And I had to present it at this big meeting where all the doctors were so that the doctors knew and understood the value of this, which uh, I think it was easier for the midwives to understand the value. The midwives, the hospital midwives were like, yeah, do it. Whatever you want, we'll write the orders. Um, The doctors needed a little bit more convincing, I would say. Um, but I presented it to them as like, first of all, this unit in this hospital is growing. Your, your nursing staff is tapped out. They can't be the ones to have to address all this stuff on top of everything else that they're already doing. Um, and the doctors also, their babies are coming all the time. They don't have the time to sit down and go over all of these things. And it's, fits so perfectly into what OTs do and what PTs do as well. And 
it really hit me when I got an order to go see somebody who had had a, ma a major abdominal surgery. So they're on just the typical med surge unit of the floor. We're ordered to see them day one post-op because they need to get up. They need their blood flow moving. And I was like, we're not doing this for C-section moms. Like they're having major abdominal surgery with lifting and bending precautions and they have a baby like what are we doing um so i presented that in the meeting i like shared that story with all of the higher ups and then also showed how this does because every hospital needs to know how this brings in revenue and what this can do not only for revenue building but for patient satisfaction um so we finally got everybody on board and we got the doctors to agree to an automatic order set. So if you come in on bed rest or if you get a C-section, immediately an order was kicked to me and then I started your plan of care with you. Mm -hmm. um, so for the bed, the bed rest moms, you know, the reason we were doing this was that there's tons of literature out there that shows the longer you live a sedentary lifestyle, the faster your muscles will start to atrophy. Mm -hmm. So in my brain, I was like, okay, we're going to put these women on bed rest, let their muscles atrophy. And, you know, bed rest is controversial in its own right. Then we're going to let these moms, their muscles are going to atrophy. And now they're going to have a preterm baby or a healthy baby either way. And they're going to have to go home and care for it after losing so much muscle mass. Like their recovery is going to be really hard. So doing what we're doing is based on their bed rest protocol, you know, whatever, whatever, if it's like maximum bed rest or I, the other day I was told modified bed rest. And I was like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? You know, but doing exercises in the bed. So either supine, like on their back or on all fours, if that's allowed, or just sitting at the edge of the bed, like if they're allowed to get up and walk to the bathroom, then every time they're getting up and walking to the bathroom, can we sit on the edge of the bed and do some scapular retractions or do some leg lifts or ankle pumps or just something to keep a li little bit of strength in those muscles? Um, so we would work with them until they have their baby. And then it was great because I was also the one in the NICU. So if you had a preterm baby, there, we're developing this continuity of care about like, hey, I'm gonna work with you right now, but then you're gonna see me again afterward. And we're building this connection all the way through and helping them feel like they kind of have somebody on their side when they're really in the thick of it. Um, and then for the C-sections, we get an order right away. Ideally, we like to get in day one post-op and be the, be the first person with the nurse to help get them out of bed. Timing doesn't always work out that way. That's, but that's like, you know, the ideal situation so that we can be the first in there to say, don't grab somebody's hands like this, laying on your back and try to pull yourself straight forward. Don't do that. Like, let's, let's do this log roll technique. You did it. You're towards the end of your pregnancy. You're really proficient in it. Let's stick with that. Yeah. Um, and then just, you know, like body mechanics throughout every movement. So on the toilet, in the shower, um, talking about early exercises that you can start even before that six week appointment, like nothing crazy. This is all just like laying on your back, doing pelvic tilts, 
But so many people think they can't do anything until six weeks. And then we've kind of missed a little bit of a window there for some recovery. Um, And then I think the big thing that I really, really, really educated everybody on was the importance of starting scar massage at six weeks Mm -hmm. and how much that will impact your long-term recovery and any scar tissue development. If you're going to have another baby, let's keep that scar tissue down in case you have to have another Mm C-section. There's not a, there's not enough talk about that side of it all. You know, it's crazy. Cause if you get a knee replacement, your orthopedic surgeon definitely tells you about doing scar massage on that knee and breaking up that scar tissue. Um, but women aren't getting that same thing in their, in their treatments. So, yeah. And because women are having so many C-sections now, what we'll see is during pregnancy, they will come in for a triage visit and we'll work them up for other causes of abdominal pain. And then a lot of times we're like, this is just scar tissue that's being stretched and distended. And I always think back to what you said, if we just did some scar manipulation early on, could we have prevented yes. some of this? And it, I mean, any surgeon will tell you if they do not have to cut through, you know, if they could cut through less versus more scar tissue, there it's always going to be safer and better for the patient, probably less bleeding, you know, in emergency situations, they can get through the anatomy faster. It's really important. Oh yeah. And I mean, I I've talked to a few of the surgeons at the hospital I was at about like, if that scar tissue is attached to the bladder, how much more difficult that that makes everything, you know, trying to make sure you don't cause damage to other structures in the process. Um, and scar tissue, I mean, scar tissue, cause I've seen it. I helped with C-sections as a surgical tech. And then as a midwife for many, many years, sometimes the scar tissue distorts the anatomy that you can barely tell what is what. I mean, it is, sometimes they can't tie, you know, tubes or do surgery on the ovary. Cause they're like, I don't, I don't know what's in here. And, and it's just, wow. It's amazing what can happen and what we could prevent. Yes. I think, and I think that's a huge piece of like the maternal health care model in our country is there's so much that we could prevent if we were able to do more on the front end of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I wanted to circle back to something you had asked though about, um, reimbursement. Cause that's a huge piece of this. You know, if you're going to be in the hospital getting reimbursed for the, the care that you do. So today, obviously I'm not, I haven't been in the hospital for about six months now, but up until then we had never gotten a kickback from an insurance company for trying to cover the services. So all the C-sections that I worked with, whether I was just doing an evaluation or follow-up treatment sessions, nothing ever got kicked back. Um, at least to my knowledge, you know, I would have to circle back with them to see if, you know, even down the road, cause I know sometimes those, those things take a while to get through. Um, but nothing was kicked back. So I think that that goes to show like, obviously you have to, you have to be careful with the diagnosis codes and you have to be careful with how you're writing stuff so that it is insurance sees it as like, this is a necessity. Um, but I mean, you know, from our standpoint, it definitely is a necessity and we are making huge improvements and changes before these people go home. Um, so yeah, I'd love to know now if, if anything has changed or not, but so far insurance is covering it. I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't cover it knowing everything that I know. Um, it's just, it's physical therapy, occupational therapy support 
where we should have always had it and we just didn't. And that's, that's absolutely that it'll always be covered. And then how many births was your hospital doing just to give a picture of how busy the hospital was? Any idea? I know you had it. You said you had a new that's a really good question. So our NICU is pretty small. It's a level three NICU. I still am PR in there, so I should still know some of the stats. Um, level three NICU, which the NICU, I think, I think at max capacity can have 13 babies at a time, but in general has about like four to five. Um, I think the postpartum unit has 13 beds and the labor and delivery unit also probably has like 13 to 15 beds. Um, there's been some changes here recently with like providers that are, that have left and had some pretty big practices. You know, I'm not, I, I feel like if I gave you a number and then somebody from the hospital listened to it, they'd be like, gosh, she's so far off. So I don't even know if I want to say, um, no, no, no. you don't have to by any means. Cause I know how numbers are, but I think those bed, those bed numbers on the unit also give somebody a really good idea of, you know, do you have a four bed labor unit and no NICU, right? You just have a nurse right. you're transferring out. Um, do you have a similar size hospital to what you just described, or are you doing, you know, three, five, 10,000 births a month? Um, but yeah. when you have those bigger numbers, you have bigger physical therapy support and, you know, those yes. therapy departments are huge because they're doing so much of that med surge ICU care. And so it's not yes. hard to find OT or even speech. Like you've got all of that right there in the hospital. We're just, yeah, I would say. Yeah. I would say our, um, our unit our like our, our physical therapy department, we have an outpatient department and then an inpatient department and the inpatient department is small. Um, but there's enough work, at least in our hospital for labor delivery, postpartum and NICU is covered. One OT covers that now, and it is enough for nearly full-time hours for her. Um, I would say in a bigger hospital, you're going to want more than one therapist working on this just because it's easy for things to fall through the cracks. And what you don't want is one C-section mom getting all the information and then another C-section mom getting none of it. So, and yeah. you know, it's, but it is tough. I would say it's tough in bigger hospitals. They need to know that there's a need for hiring another therapist to cover all of this, that there's enough revenue generated to then cover the expense of the therapist. But you know, those people on the back end, they're, they're paid to figure that stuff out. So. <laughs> okay. I had one other question about numbers. If you know them, any idea how many births the birth center is doing just for anybody that's interested in coming alongside a, a busier birth center or maybe a slower birth center? That's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I, I probably could even find that in an old note somewhere that I took. Um, on average, about 10 births a month, but sometimes that fluctuates. Like last November, there were 20 births that month. Um, so it does, and I would, and then like March coming up, I think there might only be five. So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of up and down to it, but on average around 10. And that's, that's the nature of birth. But I think everybody who listens to this podcast comes from very different censuses, birth numbers, parts of the country, 
They might be doing PRN at one place that's really busy and then doing you know, home birth on the side. So those numbers help them to say, okay, can I make something like this successful where I am? Definitely. Yeah. Which I think and I think, what, I think one of the things we've figured out that makes it successful is that I'm my own business. So I am contracted by the birth center to teach the classes for the integrated care model but they're not expected to cover my salary. I have like other revenue streams from my business that are helping to pay for me. Um, so I think that that, I think that that helps too. I think if it were, if the expectation was that there was enough coming in from the birth center to fully cover me, that could be, that could be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, money-wise, you could either be a therapist in a big health system, or you could come alongside as a contractor. But however you take the path, it's still so beneficial for women and children. It is. It is. And, you know, the people that you find that want to work in this field, they're doing it because they're passionate about women's health. We need to be paid and compensated. Absolutely. But you get into this, this aspect of healthcare because you want to make a difference for people. So. And then I'm curious in regards to the physicians that you said were maybe a little bit slow to accept your proposition. Do you have any idea why? I mean, I think sometimes when people try to come into your space, you immediately go on the the offense, right? Like, why are you coming into my space? Like, you know, stay out. We're doing great over here. And you're like, no, I have this idea of how you can do better. Um, so if, if you have anything to share there, I think sometimes when they're transparent about barriers that you had to overcome, it makes it easier if you are facing those same barriers. Yeah. I remember one of the biggest things I heard was, well, what does occupational therapy even do? You know? So I think that if you're a physical therapist, um, that's a little bit more well-known in the, the medical model. And so maybe maybe physicians would be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're going to do some like stuff with the muscles, you know, like a little bit more rudimentary there. Whereas for occupational therapy, I think a lot of times people are like, well, they're not working here. You know, like they, they get like, they don't understand what the the basis and the background of OT actually is. Um, and that was, I, I heard that more for the moms on bed rest more than anything. Um, just this kind of like, unclear understanding of like, what is the benefit of having this other person involved on the care team? Um, the C-sections, I mean, it, I think it, it only took a little bit of pushback, just trying to get the doctors to agree to, um, a, an order set, like a standard order set, but otherwise with C-sections, they were pretty on board, pretty, like pretty readily. It was more so the bed rest moms that was like, no, no, no. Here's the literature. Here's what it says. This is why you need this. <laughs> and I, will say, I think, you know, oh, go ahead. No, I, well, I think, I think some of it too, is just when you're changing something, when you're changing something that's always been done a certain way, then people are like, why change it? It's been working, but has it? <laughs> yes. Or to that point, we, we don't really do bed rest where I work. We, we have an antepartum unit, but they generally are able to walk around and go down the halls. And sometimes they go outside depending if they have IVs or not. So whenever I hear bed rest is recommended, I always think, hmm, is that evidence-based, right? Like we just, the, the rate of muscle atrophy, like you said, is stark and it just takes a number of days. It's not even a lot of weeks. It's, I think no. it's a week that you're just like, 
Yeah. And then on our postpartum side, so we are seeing more, we're giving Lovenox postpartum to prevent blood clots. Uh, yeah. Populations. And we are putting Moonvax on more than I've ever seen before. So we're doing these things, but nobody is coming alongside and saying, let's help you get out of bed and let's talk about walking, right? We're always, they always say you should be admitting with your discharge plan in mind, but I almost want to say we should be admitting with your postpartum plan in mind in regards to this conversation. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so interesting. Yeah. Okay. I think we're seeing, we're also seeing a lot of, or before I had, was gone, we were seeing a lot more wound backs and um, like the SCD pumps for the ankles a lot more. Yeah. So I think that that must just be kind of, a, I don't know, maybe a new standard that people are using. Yeah. I think it'll be a new standard, but along that we could have our new standard of occupational therapy. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about this to your point for the physicians, but also to myself, I have never written an order or uh, a referral for occupational therapy. I always, I mean, I referred, I'm not in the clinic right now, but I referred hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women to pelvic floor therapy. And now I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, we, outside of the physical complaints, let's just say you are choosing to work full-time in pregnancy. Could you go to occupational therapy and learn how to work better as your belly is growing, right? To whatever your goals are for working during pregnancy. Right. Yes. And, and, you know, that's such a, a unique piece of what I'm doing, because if you think about, you know, think about the growing belly and as it gets bigger and bigger, your center of gravity is shifting and shifting. And so there's more compression on the back of the spine to accommodate for this growing belly. Well, if you work, if you're, if you're a desk job and because of this belly, now you're like sinking back into your chair, you're rounding through your spine. You're all, you're as a result, also kind of starting to get your baby in a suboptimal position. So if we can teach you about like, you need to do some sit to stand time, like you need to be standing at your desk and sitting at your desk, um, or if you work a very physical job and you're on your feet all the time, you know, figuring out like, okay, well, is your back super tight from all of the standing you're doing? Or do you stand and kind of like sink into one hip to like take a little bit of the load off? And if so, are you having SI pain? And then we need to start working on that, you know? So it's the, the work part of it is like, there's, there's so much that we can do there. And I, you know, employers don't want to touch pregnant women, right? They don't, they're like, well, just whatever you need, just tell us what you want. Like we, and it's like, well, if we could start to make a change in the workforce that you can still work while you're pregnant, it's not, you're not like nothing's wrong with you while you're growing a human, but you might need some accommodations to make it better. And that it's, we can have these open conversations. It doesn't have to be this big, scary thing about like, oh, the pregnant woman just, you know, like, I feel like I've just seen a lot of employers get a little weird around, you know, the, the pregnant, the pregnant employee, but it's like, well, we can make her life a lot better and she's going to stay productive in her job and, and it's going to be fine. Yes. Yes. And then to that point, if you're more productive in your job and we're taking care of you as an employee, because we're helping you work better, you're going to return postpartum. If you want to come back to work, probably more fit and healthy 
and bonding with your baby better if we put the time in during pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. Well, and yeah, you know, this is, this is not even about work, but I, this is a big thing that I tell a lot of people that, um, I think it's the American Academy of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They recommend maintaining some level of physical fitness to, to some degree throughout your pregnancy, because your baby has better outcomes and tolerance to labor. Your baby already understands your heart rate variability and the fluctuations in your heart rate and um, your core engaging. And, you know, there's so much out there, you know, you Google, like, what can a pregnant woman do? And Google's either going to tell you like, oh, you can do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Or you can do nothing. You have to sit on a couch for nine months, you know? And it's like, wow, if women knew and felt empowered that what they're doing for their body to take care of themselves during pregnancy actually helps their baby in labor, I think a lot more women would choose to do something, to go on a walk every day, you know, and not feel so afraid of like, well, what is it? Am I hurting the baby? You know, like it would, there's a lot of, um, fear-based care that I think our mod, our, our medical model for women uses. And it almost does a disservice to women a little bit, instead of like empowering them to kind of make some choices for themselves as to what would be the best for them and their baby. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I mean, I don't think the evidence has changed, but if you work and stay active during your pregnancy, you generally have a shorter labor and a shorter pushing stage. And I don't know anybody who wants yeah. to have a longer labor or a longer <laughs> stage. No, no, no. And you know, like then it's like, okay, well, if you pushed for four hours or more or whatever, you know, what injuries are occurring to your bladder and to your rectum and to your pelvic floor from pushing for that long? Like, you know, if we could teach women. And that's one of the big things. I, I mean, I teach a class called push prep, like how to, how to efficiently and functionally engage the right muscles and relax the right muscles to have your baby come out easier. And we've seen remarkable, um, improvements with the women that take that class and how easily their babies come. Oh so, you know, I just, there's so much opportunity for knowledge in this, in this area. Yes. Okay. Um, tell me, let's see, let's do passion products next. So what are you working on right now? What are you super fired up and doing, whether it's in the clinic or alongside the birth center, or maybe another project you've got on the, you know, coals on the fire type thing. Tell me what. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, passion project right now is, um, trying to advance maternal health in the field of OT. Uh, so I actually just partnered up with four, there's four of us total. So three other OTs. Um, and we are in the middle of launching what's called the network. And it's an online platform for OTs to OT students or OT practitioners to have access for like resources, knowledge, live calls, mentorship, trying to kind of like, kind of push, push the mark a little bit here with how maternal health is addressed in OT and how OT sees it. Um, and, and as a result of that, we're in the midst of, we just submitted a proposal to a conference a couple of months ago and 
we have a deadline for another conference tomorrow where we're really trying to like get the word out there about what maternal health OT looks like. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the more backing you can get by state organizations or by the the national organization, then then the trickle down starts to happen. Then it's becoming like maternal health OT is presented in curriculums, which it's not right now. So like we need this trickle down approach so that there are more OTs getting fired up about this and wanting to join kind of like the movement for the change. So, yes. And I want to create demand for you because I talk a lot about, these are the questions you should ask when you're interviewing for midwifery jobs. And I guarantee you, I will ask this the next time I change jobs. Do you have OT and PT in the hospital? And if not, do you know that this is an option for your patients and here's how you do it? Yes. Yes. I know. I, you know, there's, there's so much room for change here. And, you know, if the opportunity ever presented itself to kind of like help hospitals figure out how to include this and incorporate it in their care, I would jump on that opportunity in a heartbeat because there's, there's so much, there's so much here and the hospital benefits from it and patient satisfaction goes up dramatically. If the women feel like their needs are met, they know how to move around. They know how to handle their baby. It just, it, it improves everything across the board. Yes. Have you considered writing up something, probably detailing exactly what you said about where you saw the need and the the stakeholders you had to talk to and then how it was implemented and submitting that to the Journal of Midwifery or birth is a more international journal, but I would probably say like start with midwifery. I'm not sure the ACOG journals, I have them, the green and the gray journals would probably pick that up. Yeah. I think you could probably get the midwives on the side of you first, because that's all the stuff we're already doing. We just don't have time for That is such a great, I, I had not thought about that, but now I will. We'll talk <laughs> offline. We'll talk offline. We'll get you into the journey. <laughs> okay. And then we always love to talk about resources. So what are the things that you find yourself recommending over and over and over, whether it's books or podcasts or websites, um, talk to you about, I mean, we haven't talked about, you have a great Instagram handle. Um, I can't remember if your courses are online or not, but if, if there's they- a process of, of they're not yet we're, we're videotaping them and getting them onto an online platform now. So they will be but a little bit of an undertaking there. Yes. Yes. And then what do you find yourself recommending to anybody as far as whether it could be um, like spinning babies is a common one that, that comes to my mind when I'm talking about right position and stretching and just daily movement of your body. But from your perspective, you might have stuff that isn't even on my radar. Yeah, I think so. It kind of depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm, if I'm talking to OTs that are really wanting to get into this area, um, I'm, I'm telling them a lot about how to get some of that knowledge on maternal health that we don't really get in, um, in our curriculum, unfortunately. So for them, I'm really encouraging like uh, any kind of labor and delivery or postpartum doula training, because those, those trainings do a very well-rounded job of giving you like the basic information that you need to kind of start understanding like what's occurring in the body during that time. Um, so that's kind of the, the big thing I encourage for OTs. Um, and then outside of that, I mean, I really encourage any practitioner who wants to get into this field to, to 
they need to better understand the connection between like the mind body baby. Um, and I think for that, like there's a few books I really like. Um, one is it also, or it starts with the egg. I think it's, I think that's the title of it. I actually have it by Rebecca Fett. Um, so that you can start understanding early on, like how everything's impacting everything from such an early stage. Um, but then I really encourage people to do some reading on birth in different cultures, because there's so much we can pull from other cultures about how to care for women. Um, so there's a, there's a book called birth in four cultures. I think that's the title of it. Yeah. And that one to, yeah, that to me, that one and reclaiming the rite of passage. I think that's it. That one's downstairs. I can't grab it. Um, those two just really talk about like the role transformation that's happening, happening to the woman through the process of pregnancy and postpartum and motherhood. And I think for, I mean, really anybody, we need to be spending a little bit more time understanding that side of it all, because, you know, it's so easy, especially in the hospital system. They're just the, the patients can become numbers and it's the, you just start to see the same thing over and over. And we start to lose the, you know, the impact of like that baby born to be a C-section in a sterile environment and the delay from belly to mom and how long it takes, you know, that, that delay there. I, there's, I think we, any practitioner, not just OTs, we can do more to better understand um, the implication of the birth process on mm -hmm. the mother baby dyad and what that does to them and how it impacts anxiety and depression and bonding. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a piece there that I think it's overlooked a little bit. We haven't even talked about the mood disorder spectrum, but I would imagine that that pairs perfectly with everything you're doing, that if we can make you stronger, more prepared, you can sit and you can stand and you're getting back to exercise sooner that you have lower rates of anxiety and depression or yeah. it's existing that it's more stable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think so much of the anxiety can come from the fear of the unknown. But if we front loaded you with some of the knowledge of what to expect, like it's normal for you to get out of a shower after a warm shower and start leaking breast milk. Mm -hmm. And like, instead of that being so jarring to women to be like, I just wanted to be clean. You know, if they know that that's coming and you can expect some of that stuff, it takes off the weight of that unknown and it prepares you for like, it, it is normal in the first few days to leak a little bit of urine. If it extends past that, we want to work on it, but nothing's wrong with you. Those muscles are stretched and they're tired and it's okay. You're not broken. You're not destroyed. You're not less sexy. You know, these things, it's the, it's the, the, the behind the scenes part of motherhood that Instagram influencers don't always show you. And when, you know, when you don't compare to like the Instagram model with their hair done after having a baby, you kind of feel like you've done it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And I think too, the other piece of 
what I'm doing that helps moms with the anxiety and depression is putting them in a group. Like we're going to, I have, you know, have these group classes. I have these mommy baby play groups, tummy time groups, infant massage, getting the women together. First of all, it gives you a reason to get out of the house. It gives you a weekly commitment. So you have to, got to brush your teeth that day. You know, like you're going to remember to do something that day and how that can break up that, that fog of like days on end where you're like, I don't know who I am, what I am, where I am. But today I got out of the house and I saw other women and it can just fuel that, that community aspect that our brains really need. Like our brains and our bodies need community, not isolation. Um, and that makes a huge difference for these moms. I feel like that's a big turning point for a lot of moms that I see. It's like, oh, I have a reason to get out of the house. I now know I can get out of the house. I know the steps to it. It's not as foreign, felt foreign the first time, but now it's not as foreign. Um, and it just takes away that, the fear, the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And that isolation piece is huge. When you feel that you are not the only person in the world with a newborn baby and that you think I'm stuck in this phase forever. And then you go see 10 other women with babies. You think, oh, okay. We're all here. Yes. We're doing it. Right. Yeah. And you know, it may, it's a game changer. Yeah. And community is very powerful. I think what we're seeing with group prenatal care is that same effect you're seeing it more in that postpartum stage, which I think needs to become a standard. Communities are going to have to build that up individually. That's going to take grassroots, right? From yeah. community in the nation. And those rural, rural communities are are probably going to be the ones to suffer. But getting your stuff online, you know, reaches that community too. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's been a, I've had a, a plenty of people reach out and say like, is any of this stuff accessible? So it kind of, grew from the need, like people were telling me that they wanted more of that. And it was like, what a great way to be able to, to reach people that otherwise wouldn't have access to it. Yeah. You're like, it's coming people. It's coming. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> right. Like I'm working on it. I swear. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Um, a couple of things to round it out. If somebody is interested more in occupational therapy, where would you send them? Where, where do we need to go to learn more about occupational therapy and programs and becoming an occupational therapist? That's, that's a great question. I think probably number one place to start would be looking into like the American Occupational Therapy Association to kind of just get like an understanding of what OT is and what it looks like and what the process is um, for working towards that to getting that degree. There are tons of Facebook groups out there as well. I mean, if you just even like search occupational therapy on Facebook, you'll find groups that are kind of broken up for very like specific things that they work on. Like there's a pelvic health occupational therapy group. There's an OT for entrepreneurs um, and spending time exploring those things. Because I think I don't think everybody needs to go into their OT profession, into that graduate degree, knowing exactly where they're headed, but knowing what's out there gives you a better understanding of like how you can tailor your degree specific to, to your needs and desires. Um, and then for OTs, there are, there's two routes. You can get a master's or you can get a doctorate. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's really important for people to spend the time thinking about 
which way they want to take it and what feels important to them because the price tag on the doctorate is a lot more. And so you want to make sure if you're choosing that route, that it is absolutely pertinent to your career path. Um, otherwise, if you had to take out loans for school, just a traditional OT job, it can be hard to pay off that loan. I think that was a little bit of a misconception when I went through school. They yeah. were like, you'll be fine. You'll make the money. It's going to be great. And now I'm like, what? <laughs> it's, so. it's really expensive right now in life in general, just for housing and food and gas. So yeah. You might make a decent income, but life is also very expensive. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then for those that don't know, because I don't know, what would you say the main difference is between going for that master's and that doctorate degree as far as practice? Obviously, the money we talked about, tuition, time is probably something different. But when you get out and you're holding those, what's the difference in what the job sector is offering? Good question. Um, from my experience now, I entered the job field in 2016. So it's been a little bit as far as like if there are any differences. When I first entered the field, um, there were there was no pay difference between a master's and a doctorate. Um, the reason I chose it was because I knew I wanted a non-traditional path for my career. So I felt like the additional research and like thesis writing that you get from that doctorate was going to prepare me for that path. Um there might be an opportunity now to kind of try to argue a little bit more, uh, like a higher pay, base pay with the doctorate. Um, a, a few years ago, that wasn't, that wasn't really a thing. So I'm not sure now, um, I would love to talk to somebody who's, you know, kind of just getting out into the workforce if it makes a difference. But I think one of the biggest things is it does set you up with a little bit more confidence in what you bring to the field. And, mm -hmm. Um, I felt much more prepared to like walk into a room with a CEO and say, this is what needs to be changed and this is how to do it. And I think that a lot of that came from like, I mean, doing the research. And then when I was 24, 25 years old, I presented my research to a room full of doctors. So it kind of, it, it gives you that next level of like, okay, you, you're on the same playing field as some of the, like the big guys. Yeah. Yeah. Nursing is very similar to that for the DNP, the doctorate of nursing practice. Um, I would say that almost exactly the same argument to what you just said, it is not going to necessarily improve your salary on the other side of graduation, but the ability to talk about policy, to take evidence, to put it into practice, to do quality improvement is there. And you just, you don't have time to do it in your master's program and in those training pipelines. Yeah. Uh, I would love it, but you, it's very hard. We talk about this with midwifery students. It's very hard to teach you how to go be an advocate when you are just trying to learn how to catch babies and repair lacerations exactly. and do pregnancy care. <laughs> There's a place for it, but the training pipeline would have to be so much longer. Yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness. So interesting. Okay. Haley, where do we find you on Instagram and what is your website as well? If we're trying to reach you there. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so Instagram I'm at wild W I L D dot O T. Um, and then my website is www.wild dash ot.com. Um, but then also, you know, for people that are interested in kind of, uh, getting more into the maternal health area of OT, 
the best place would be to find us at www.maternalhealthot.org. Um, and that's going to take you to the landing page for this community and online network that we're getting ready to launch in early March. So that's, that's happening. Oh, it's going to come to fruition. It's going to be so great. Thank you. Yeah, we're really, we just launched the, the face or the Instagram page yesterday. That's at maternal health dot OT. We just launched that yesterday. So, you know, trying to kind of get the word out and do some advertising a little bit before March comes right around the corner. To go find you. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and we'll have to, if all of this comes to fruition, we like to bring people back in a year or two and say, okay, these were dreams two years ago, but tell us where you are now. So if that's the case, you'll have to reach out. Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. This has been fantastic. It's been great chatting with you and kind of sharing this experience together. Thanks Haley. All right. Thanks for listening. And I hope you guys will tune in again next time. Remember, you can email me at journey to midwifery podcast at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram uh, as journey to midwifery podcast. Send me your suggestions. Or if you'd like to be on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. Until next time.